Thank y'all so much. It's, it's good to be back. Hey folks, find Psalm chapter 18, and we're going to read uh, just a handful of verses. Psalm chapter 18, Psalm 18 is very long. It's 50 verses. We're going to read verses 25 through 30 together, and then we'll study um, in Psalm uh, 18, verse 25. Verse 25. Uh, David writes, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure. And with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. But you save a humble people. Excuse me, for you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run up again I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Look, I find the scriptures intensely pleasing. I know most of you, uh, all of you do, certainly find them pleasing to heart and to mind. I mean, it's not just um, an intellectual thing. It's an emotional attachment to them always. I know that when I go to the scriptures, I'm going to find something to feed my soul and to encourage my heart in such a way that, that I can find that ammunition. Do you know what I mean? To, to take on the world. And, and we all have a, a lot of very difficult things to... Uh, to deal with a lot of very difficult um, paths to to trod, and it's wonderful to be able to go to the scriptures and and find that, and as a believer, be encouraged by it. I also find it, to be honest with you, even more satisfying when our Lord uses uh, these times of, of revelation for our hearts to reveal aspects of His divine character to which I don't automatically gravitate. When He shows me things about Himself that I'm not going to arrive at on my own. Because all of us, I'm not saying we, we paint the Lord in, in our own image. That's certainly the way that the world deals with our God. But I'm going to say this, that we are all attracted to our God for different reasons. And they are not mutually exclusive. Um, for a long time, I was attracted to the, to the love of my God. But as I grew in, in a biblical understanding, it was his power in union with his love that I found so appealing to my heart. It was, um, I think I've probably used this illustration before, um, uh, the, 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 the school, part, I can't think of his name, Jeffrey, whatever, I can't think of his name right now, who wrote Waiting for Superman and was part of the documentary. He talked about being a little boy and, and loving, you know, comics. And he and his brother would read Superman comics, and they just were so thrilled by it because they were poor inner-city kids, and they, they felt like Superman could come and set things right in their lives. And they remember being so heartbroken when they found out that there was no Superman, that he wasn't real. Because they felt like there was nobody in their life that cared enough, that was good enough, but had enough power to do anything about the problems. I'm so attracted to a God that is both loving and powerful because we have that Superman. We've got that God who both loves us intensely and has the power to do things about our individual crises, to do things about our problems. We have someone that we pray to that can bring miracles. We have someone we pray to that can heal broken hearts, 
These are important aspects of who our God is. I, I, I love those, those aspects. Look in the passage that has been selected from, from a very long psalm. The facets of the Lord's goodness in, in managing His interactions with His chosen people are highlighted. He kind of tells us how we, not, not in a complete way, but in one cog that fits into, into, a, into a greater understanding of who God is that spans the entire Bible. But he starts to show us in this, this is how God deals with his interactions with people. This is how God manages us. Because we take a lot of managing. My faith needs the constant tending of that constant gardener who is God. He tends my faith as he does with yours. Also, his penchant for justice in coping with the transgressions of the lost is, is highlighted. Verses 25 through 26 say, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself uh, pure. And with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. Stated simply, our God judges the world in an ongoing effort to legitimize the church. He is working constantly through His infinite power to make the church the legitimate body that it can't be on its own. That His grace sustains. To legitimize us. To convict the world. To spread His gospel truth to the nations. And prepare the way of the Lord. Several of the aspects of Christ's character are on display in this passage. Mercy. Talks about His mercy. It's merciful. But he specifically equates that mercy with showing it to those who are merciful. It's a reminder. It's always a reminder in our lives. We, we show mercy. We're those to whom an infinite debt has been, for, excuse me, for whom an infinite debt has been forgiven. Our response now is to be merciful to our own debtors. And I think that's one of those things I talk about all the time. But there are different personality types that take this different ways. I have to reiterate myself. I don't want to do that. It's, it's kind of a shameful thing to do, but I'll do it anyway. And that is this, is that I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to discipline myself, my heart, my mind, to this understanding. That is, if, if I'm mad at somebody because I think they've done me wrong, then I can only be so angry because I've done other people wrong. The only person who can really be mad at someone for, for some situation like that is someone who just simply lived perfectly. You've never told a lie. You've never done anything underhanded. You've never done anything sneaky. never talked about anybody behind their back. You've never offended anyone. You've never passed on a juicy piece of gossip about someone. You've never done any of those things. And you can prove it. Now you can say, okay, well, I'm going to be hard-shelled toward this person because I've never offended anyone. But the reality is, is that all of us have offended someone. Offended someone grievously, deeply. For that reason, we really shouldn't hold grudges about those things. We shouldn't hold back mercy because mercy was extended to us. Mercy, holiness, holiness, purity, justice. Holiness and purity so closely related. Holiness, the idea of being set apart. Purity, the idea of living by the Word. How do I live a pure life? I live by the Word of God. Every day anew, living by God's Word. The God who sent His only Son to die for our sins, who displayed the source of mercy on the cross of Calvary, beckons to the lost sinners and petitions His heart to repent of sins, who enables belief 
and restores the sin-damaged soul also judges and will deal harshly with the reprobate sinner. Once again, God is always going to describe himself in complete terms. He's not going to allow us to come in here and preach to God that's all love and all mercy and all grace, but never judges. Because the fact of the matter is God is all those things. He is love and mercy and grace, but he's also justice. He is a just God, a holy God, a righteous God. And as much as he will show mercy, he will also, he will also act in justice. He will condemn if necessary. Imagining our God in any other way but in his complex reality is to hinder the progress of the gospel in our hearts, in our testimony, and in the world around us. So there's a reminder here that as we look at passages like this, we've got to preach the complete gospel. Not just Tony, every man who, 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 who climbs in this pulpit, and, and every one of us as we go forth into our lives and, and share a gospel, what you believe matters. What you practice matters. Because only the complete gospel with the complete God saves. Partial gospels don't save. Partial gospels condemn. Only the whole Jesus will save the sin-sick sinner. Our Lord declares in verse 27, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. The intention of our God through the proclamation of the gospel to the hearts of the chosen and the continued instruction uh, in righteousness which occurs in the church is that we would become a humble people. So God preaches the way He does through His Word. He inspires those men who come forth and preach these words. Not that we would be an arrogant people, but that we would be a humble people. If there's one thing I've noticed in this time of so much dissension is that it tends to bring out either a rebellious arrogance from the church that says, in light of the last passage, I've never done anything wrong to anybody. I don't have any reason to say I'm sorry. And what I always say to that is, is that everybody always says that kind of stuff. But are you accountable for what you said when you drive? And it's not a joke when you know no one else is listening. Everyone says, you know, I'm not this. I'm not a racist. Every moment of every day is now not under the light of some foreign body. It's under the light of an infinite God who judges everything that you've ever thought. When everything I've ever thought is laid bare, to be honest with you, I'm not always sure. I'm not always sure what I am. I want to believe I'm, a, I'm one way. Now, I'm not telling you you've got to go do anything. What I'm saying is this, is that ought to produce in us a humility, a real deep humility. That what would happen if you had to go to court and prove it and was laid out in front of everybody every single thing you ever thought? Everything you ever thought. But the other one is, is, is almost as, as, as insidious, and that is a false kind of humility. Guys, I'll be on blunt with you. Through passages like this, I'm out there seeking my own humility. I'm doing it all over again. I'm looking and saying, am I really who I say I am? 
I'm, I'm questioning my humility now because I don't believe it's on. I believe it's corrupted by my own natural haughtiness, my natural arrogance. But you see a lot of, you know, shining of Lecrae's shoes. Kind of a false humility. A show, to be honest with you. Accomplishes nothing. Doesn't substitute for a repentant church. Doesn't substitute for a church that's hardwired to repent. Hardwired to question themselves. That God's trying to make out of us a humble people who reject that natural haughtiness of man. That in fact, I believe what God does through this kind of preaching, not mine, this that you're seeing right before you in the Psalms is literally burn the haughtiness from our souls. It's going to change the pulpit. The, the issue that's being raised right now will be a secondary issue to the arrogance of the church. To the arrogance of the pulpit itself, brothers who preach. And that God will burn from us through this kind of study and this kind of prayer. Through real repentance. What's left of the haughtiness that, that survives salvation. Burn from our souls, our psyches, and our actions by the power of His infinitely pure and powerful Word. Look, while we are all God's creation, it's the biblical fact that He judges those who are chosen, children of a covenant relationship with Christ, by way of the gospel and the blood, differently than He does the children who remain in wrath. We all face judgment. We understand that. Whether it is the, the Bema seat, the mercy seat of Christ, where our works are judged by fire, or it is disastrously the great white throne of judgment where the world will stand accepting their faith, denying the truth to the bitter end in complete rebellion, unable to beg for mercy. One reserved for the church, for God's people, in which our works are still being judged today, but the other for the world. The brother of the Lord describes a sort of intentional gospel-defined differentiation when he writes in James 4, 4-6, through 6, You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James speaks to the church and he says, how dare you be friends with the world? That's a point we have to hang on to. As I studied through this, I realized how many times I'm called to go in front of people and in such a complicated way make the simplest points over and over again. Point that must be well taken by the church. We have no business being in any type of friendship with the world. We are a set-apart, separate people. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The first assertion of James is one that we have to repeat over and over again. Believers should never have an affinity for the world. You know, I, I know I sound like a, a Bible thumper, and that's okay, because that's a safe landing spot for your pastor. Understand that. That's a safe landing spot. I remember being a boy almost 50 years ago, and our pastors preached constantly then about worldliness in the church in the 1970s. Worldliness in the church. What do you think the greatest issue the church faces today is? Worldliness, without a doubt. 
We've never moved beyond it. Now, this is not some sort of call to turn off demands for repentance that can even be waged from the, from the world. There's no problem with that. We need to listen. But there's a difference between listening and affinity. Between listening and friendship. Listening and enmity with our God. Siding with the world. Allowing the world to corrupt us. Our dependence on Christ is so complete that we cannot be intertwined with the world in a corrupt fashion. David writes in verse 28, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. He is the one who has illuminated us and now there's so much of the church of the 21st century that looks back to darkness. That looks to the way of darkness as if somehow that is light. Now, here's the reality. And the reality is, is that it may very well be that we need a revival of repentance and a revival of faith within the church. Not just a vocational revival. Not just some type of, of recommitting ourselves in the strange ways that we talked about in the past. But we might just very well need evangelistic crusades to begin within the church. For, for, for decades I felt they were out of place. I, I feel more wrong than ever. The reason why the church turns back to the, to the world so quickly is because the church never stopped being of the world. Never stopped being of darkness. As those whose light devoid hearts have been illuminated by the will of God in granting repentance and belief, the world must be anathema to us. There's a real call here, folks, within the pages of Scripture that we would hate the world. Hate it. Reject the world. Embrace gospel truth. Reject the things of the world. Embrace the definitions of Scripture. Reject the world. That's the call. Reject it. Turn our backs on it. It must make us nauseous and not allure us. There is a fundamental change in us. Do you understand that? A fundamental change that before the cross came heavily upon our lives, we loved the world. I loved it. You loved it. We all know we did. We know we were children of darkness. And we know we loved darkness. We know we did. And that God has changed our hearts. So those things that once drew us in, we are now learning to hate and despise. And the only way we survive as a people is if we learn to hate the world. The only way we survive. I'll be honest with you. The only way we flourish and the only way not just our lives... But our deaths take on meaning as if we grow in a hatred of this world and a longing for the next. If we embrace the idea that we were not made for this world at all. And that any time spent on it is wasted investment in bankruptcy. Also, believers must wisely engage the world. Although we are required to minister to, in, and to the world by way of the truth, we are not those who are engaged in the affairs of the world as if they were not corrupt. See, I think that's where we make that, that to be honest. And I, I can say this because I did this. 
I can say this because I did it. I remember brothers, brothers who've, who've done this in the past. I remember as I grew older as a youth pastor, in some ways becoming more engaged with the world. Now, you know why I did that? Because I wanted to understand my kids. I, want, I wasn't young anymore. And I wanted to understand my children. And so I, so I would find myself trying to engage the world more. And what I, did not, what I did, I did not do in discernment. I did in allowing corruption in. I'm going to engage them. And oftentimes I'm going to, like, like our young ladies here who've done, who've done missions work are going to understand. I'm going to have to be able to, to understand a foreign culture at times. Because the culture of this world is foreign to the culture of the church. All of us are missionaries. Because all of us belong here in a place that's not the world. And are forced to go out into a place in which we barely understand the language, right? And increasingly we don't. But there's a difference between understanding it and being drawn in by it. Allowing it to change us. Any involvement in the world sullies the reputation of the body of Christ and invites into our lives the devil and his allies. Whenever we cross that line, and it's a broad line, we allow, we invite the devil into our ministries, into our lives, into our families. The difficulty that we are experiencing in the current world is that the church no longer engages the world using the truth of Scripture. We've said it, we've said it, we've said it, haven't we? The answer to the commotion of our age is the gospel. And therefore, we engage the world how? On gospel terms. We are pointed and direct in what we say. Because what we say has been approved not by the elders, but by the shepherd. Any involvement in the world sullies us. Gospel witness and apologetic reasoning is how we engage the world using the truth of the scriptures. Instead, the world is proselytizing the church. The world's trying to win us. They win it through social media. They win it through direct engagement. Before long, we start to think of things in their terms. And I'm going to show you some of that here in just a few moments. Give me a few more. In Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, Mark Dever wrote this. He said, in this past century, Christians have all but ignored biblical teaching on the corporate nature of following Christ. Our church is a new uh, awash in self-centered narcissism and hyper-individualism. Jesus never intended us to be Christians alone and that our love for others who aren't just like us is taken to be indicative of whether we truly love God. Essentially, what I'm going to show you in a moment is what it finally dawned on me today was the biggest issue. During my lifetime, we started using this um, understanding. When we talked about salvation in my lifetime, we talked about having a personal relationship with Christ. Now, personal in terms of, of, uh, of particular atonement, personal in terms of individual new birth, absolutely. Absolutely. It's not a corporate issue in that matter. It's an individual issue in that you were born again. 
Christ saved your soul. The atonement is particular to your situation as is particular to the situation of every single individual. And that God legitimately died for your sins. Not for sin, but for your sins. Particular atonement, we understand that, from the foundations of our faith. And unique, unique salvation. But we've taken that not to mean those aspects, but to mean I can define my salvation individually my way. The Bible never gives us that ability. The Bible never says that you can have your salvation your way and it can work differently for you than it does for others. By grace you have been saved by faith. All of us saved in exactly the same manner but uniquely saved. But now, the world has taken this to mean we can define everything the way we want to. That you can call yourself a Christian anytime you want to do that. And that you get to define what it means to be a Christian. Now that is a ridiculous premise. Look, the grace of God given the church through salvation purchased by the shed blood of Christ is not licensed liberty, but a newfound restriction placed upon us. Before we could live the corrupt life of the individual who made his or her own way in the world. Now we are those who are called to live by the words of Christ in the fashion that his word and his example dictates for us. What has happened in the, the broader Christian community is that, that we have now assumed that we can have a, a, a beautiful slavery to Christ by way of the blood, but that we can dictate the, ter dictate the terms of that slavery. And we simply cannot. He will always be master, and we will always be the doulos, those enslaved to Christ by His very blood. And as doulos, we will live our lives as He commands, and not as we presume. Verse 29 reminds us that even when overwhelmed by the responsibility of holy separation, we are not powerless to succeed, uh, 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 to succeed uh, but imbued with power from on high. As David writes, For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Look, athleticism is not the heart of the promise. Don't expect to outrun the troop or leap over the wall. Unless God needs for you to. In the very same strange fashion, don't expect to drink poison or, or handle a snake. Unless God expressly needs for you to do that to proclaim the gospel. Don't expect those things. It's presumption. It's foolish presumption. But what is it? The strenuous and the impossible spiritual achievements which only Christ can enable. Fools preach. The, the weak go to their knees in prayer. We are bold when we are not by nature bold. God does things in and through us that are even greater than an athletic achievement. Only the believer can experience these things. If we trust the power of Christ to set His people apart, then we will be established in Him. But Paul writes in Titus 2.12, to the church that God's grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age.
training us. We're being taught. We're coming together like this for the purposes of being taught how to do this. It's far different from the impression the 21st century church is garnering from their experience of both the corporate body and the world. I bring that up just to say this, that we have a generation of especially young people who, for whatever reason, became disenchanted with the church. Sometimes legitimately, probably most of the time not legitimately. Became disenchanted with people. And they've started to, to voice these opinions and share these things. And I just, I saw this. The other day, and I know I, I talk about social media stuff a lot. But the fact of the matter is, for me, the insight's there. I get to see what real people who claim Christ say and, and confront it. Now, I have no desire to take this young lady. I'm going to read you this young lady's words, okay? I have no desire to criticize her. She's already getting just blasted all the time, okay? None, no desire for that at all. In fact, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm deeply happy that she did this. I mean, it was a Twitter post. It was long, guys. I mean, it was probably... Nine or ten tweets long, which is really long for Twitter, right? This is like a manifesto. But I'm going to read just the first couple of them. Listen to these things. You may have heard these before. This is what she stated. And I'm not going to give you your name. Um, Since conservative Christians keep coming at me here, it's always that kind of language. I always think that's kind of funny. Here, I am a Christian and I believe proselytizing is violence against another. Proselytizing is witness, is sharing your faith. Okay, I'm a Christian, and I believe um, LGBTQ plus people are divine and should lead us. Um, I am a, a Christian, and I learn a lot from people who do not share my faith. I'm a Christian, and I don't go to church. I'm a Christian, and I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. I'm a Christian, and I embrace sex positivity, which includes but isn't limited to sex outside of marriage. Complicated stuff. Let's, let's just deal with them one at a time. And, and I, I pray generously. Honestly, I don't find these words entirely shocking. I've talked to enough people. Nor do I find them all logically or biblically unsound. There's some stuff here we needed to hear. And it's okay to hear it. For believers, proselytizing is not violent if it's done in light of the Great Commission. Mark 16, Acts 1-8, Acts 20-27... Are, are a host of other verses. Sharing our faith is the single most loving thing we can possibly do. Guys, is it shared wrongly? All the time. Is it shared in arrogance? Absolutely. Is it shared without an iota of the love that motivated the cross? cross? There's no doubt about it. I can absolutely understand, knowing the broader church, why, why I... A sin-sick young woman would feel like that aspect of our faith doesn't belong there. I understand that. And I understand that. In the very same way, I understand how come matters like race in the Bible are so abundantly clear to anybody who wants to look why somebody could think the church was racist. You know why? Because it was staring them in the face and they refused to see it. How dare we? How dare we preach part of it? How dare we, we believe part of it and ignore the parts that we don't find appealing to us or to our system at the time. I understand that. I totally understand. 
as I, the example I wanted to bring up was the Crusades. Demonic bloodbaths that did nothing to further the ends of Christ. They were motivated by greedy mercantilist minds and sin-twisted hearts. And no missionary that I've ever met thought they were anything but a stain on the faith. I've never met one single person who went out in this world to, to, to take the gospel to some of these very lands who ever thought that any of the four crusades, the main four, were anything but, but, but devilishly led. They were about greed and money and land. It had nothing to do with the cross. Led oftentimes, to be honest with you, by church leaders in the Middle Ages, brothers, who were more lost than the inhabitants of the lands they sent armies to. Many of them reside now in hell. So I understand. I understand how someone with a worldly conscience, but not, not enough understanding of the Scripture, are, are knowing enough people to see what happens when the gospel preached does what it's supposed to do. I understand how they could arrive at a, at, a, at a gross mischaracterization of the very heart of what we do. Next, while people who struggle with identity and sinful desires should not lead in the church, as to be honest with you, if you really think about leadership in the church, almost no one rises to the criteria. And I'll say this much, as we've often said, God qualifies the called. I don't feel qualified to stand before you as your leader. Brother, are you qualified? Qualified? I don't know about these guys, but I came to leadership kicking and screaming. It wasn't my plan for my life. It wasn't what I wanted to do, not even in the church. The fact that not all are qualified to lead shouldn't shock anyone at all. At the same time, people who struggle in this way are deserving of every iota of our respect our tenderness, our love, our compassion, and our biblical truth. And I'll be honest with you, the church that I grew up in did not practice that. Didn't love everyone the way they should. Love is a simple concept, yet the church gets it wrong all the time. We love through truth and not without its limitations for us and for everyone. We love through truth, but it doesn't mean that sometimes we don't have to tell people bitter truths. But we still have to tell them. All of us can learn from those who do not share our faith. There's no doubt about that. Um, as we've been talking about within evangelism and within missions, and these girls are a product of it. Evangelism and missions are about relationship first about talking to people first. The very idea of someone standing on a street corner with a bullhorn, spewing the gospel of everybody, and have it having any effect whatsoever, I'll be honest with you, it's probably nonsense. It's probably nonsense. It's a lot of fun for the guy doing it. It's a lot of fun for the one who does it. I'm not sure it pays dividends. But really getting to know people, showing love first, does pay dividends. We can always learn from people. Listening is at the heart of the gospel witness. It's not a monologue, but a dialogue. 
All Christians should find a gospel-believing church and unite their life to it. There's no doubt about that. No doubt about it. And what the comment from the young lady was, I'm a Christian, I don't go to church. No. If you're a believer, unite with the body. If you're not a believer, stay outside the body. It's the bottom line. If you're a believer, you're going to unite with the body of Christ. It's not an option. I know far, far too many young people of this generation, the generation from which this young lady comes, to be honest with you, have thought the church is now a secondary consideration. That you can be a Christian and not be a part of the formal church somewhere. And my challenge is this. Show me in Scripture. They're not able to. At all. All Christians should find a gospel-living church. And you don't have to live to it. If you didn't have, finally I have to say this. If you do not believe that the Bible is the word of God, then how can you even be sure there is a God at all? We are believers because we are a product of God's written word. How can anyone call themselves a Christian in a meaningful way without the Bible? There is no way. Lastly, finally, holiness, especially sexual holiness, is at the heart of Christian morality. The very heart of Christian morality is sexual holiness because sexual sin damages so much that God knew us too well. He knew us too well. He knew if there was any aspect of our lives that had to be reined in by his truth, he knew it was sexuality. It had to be. It had to be. Because it will wreak havoc on our lives. Look, my intention is not to rebut this. There's far too much to say, but God's word in verse 30 offers the response. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Look, for anyone who struggles with the world, find the perfect way through a God who keeps his word and who also shields those who look to him for help. Let's pray.